Tina, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Great to be joining you from London today. Um, so I, I think it'd be great to sort of start off by just going over your career because you've taken some several interesting turns throughout it. Uh, you're currently employed by Avon Hurst and were previously the chief global political analyst at Citibank. Um, can you talk to us and our, and our audience about the work that you currently do uh, and where along sort of your career path you were introduced to the idea of geopolitical forecasting and political risk? Um, because you start off your career at Eurasia Group working in political risk. Um, what were your initial feelings about the di discipline and sort of how have they evolved and changed throughout your career? Thanks. Well, it's, um, it's been a, a fascinating um, period of time in terms of how the world has developed to, to be um, in this business of global political risk analysis. Um, in terms of how I got into it, well, um, my career path in all kinds of ways has been a bit unorthodox, but after I finished my um, graduate degree at SEPA, the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia, which is an international relations and economics master's degree, I went and did field work in Eastern Europe and, uh, and the former Soviet Union. So that means going out and doing interviews with people. Um, at that time, it was about the post-communist, uh, post-Soviet transition. So, you know, kind of actual interviewing on the ground field work. And when I, <clears throat> when I got back to New York, where I was at the time, I became very interested in, in what I thought was a gap um, in the market where, you know, we had equity analysts on, on Wall Street. We had <clears throat> certainly plenty of economists, but nobody who was truly um, bringing political analysis from a technical perspective. Uh, in that sense, the field hasn't changed that much, right? You still have the kind of eminence grease types uh, ranging from the very top of the tree, uh, the former US secretaries of state like Condoleezza Rice and Madeleine Albright, uh, who have consulting firms, of course, doing, doing political risk, kind of drawing on their, on their contacts. Um, but I became very interested in a more technical approach, comparative political science-driven approach, and also using data, even um, qualitative data, uh, which kind of harkens back to my, my time doing field work, where it's a lot of survey research, uh, to inform what was likely to happen. And then um, when I spoke to, to Ian Bremer at Eurasia Group, uh, at that time, in the late 90s, Eurasia was doing mainly government advisory work, and I was brought in pretty much straight out of graduate school to, to set up Eurasia Group's financial markets research business. And that was something that was completely new, right? That was 1999. Um, of course, there were the um, kind of... Um, political risk insurers and, um, and looking at due diligence and that sort of thing. But when I joined Eurasia Group and we set up the first index on Wall Street, bringing together uh, political, social security and economic indicators, it was the first thing of its kind. Um, and I led that effort working with a number of analysts and setting up the products and, and rolling it out. And it was a pretty groundbreaking um, uh, effort to, to bring together all of those factors and kind of started my and crystallized my thinking about how it's important when assessing political risk 
not to just limit yourself to um, the kind of typical indicators and, and factors, meaning purely elections and, and, and GDP and growth rates. You need that, but if you really want to anticipate more nuanced outcomes, um, you need to cast a, a wider net. So I took that idea, I joined City uh, in, in London and had a global role as the first ever chief global political analyst working for a major financial institution. Uh, spent 17 years there as a sell-side publishing client-facing research analyst. And um, it was the first bank to, to have political analysis sitting alongside traditional asset class research, so commodities and interest rates and everything else. Uh, so that was really like being in the, the laboratory, if you will, uh, an opportunity to, to look at how political factors were interpreted both by um, institutional investors in a day-to-day -day market sense, as well as the work that I did advising um, the C-suite, so corporate uh, and investment banking clients. Um, and, and that has been an incredible window into how business leaders and investors think about political developments or, or don't think about them. Uh, now at Avonhurst, uh, um, which is a legal and um, political uh, boutique advisory firm, I'm bringing together those lessons to to work with um, to work with sophisticated capital clients, uh, as we call them, in this more volatile COVID environment. Um, and uh, I consider it, you know, the next chapter in a career which has been about breaking new ground whenever possible and finding new ways to help people uh, make sense of global politics. How have you noticed sort of the reception from investors and business leaders to the work of geopolitical risk throughout your career? Uh, in his book, Geopolitical Alpha, Marco Popic makes the point that, you know, for years sort of in, 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 in the post-Cold War aftermath, uh, a lot of investors weren't really focused about uh, geopolitical risk in the way that they might have uh, in 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 the past. But um, in the decades since then, as the world has become much more complex and much more multipolar, that um, geopolitical risk um, is much more important for investors. Have have you sort of noticed that throughout your career and into the decades that um, it's become more and more um interesting and, and more important for investors and business leaders um, to have a good understanding of political risk? Well, it's, it's now un unavoidable. It is now impossible to operate in the contemporary business environment without having an understanding of political risk. But I would, you know, kind of take issue with the, the methods and approaches that, that are employed. I mean, when I joined City, there were 110 economists country economists and, and one of me. Um, and City was still the only bank on the street that had a, a chief global political analyst, right? Um, so if I were to really try to distill what's changed in the 20 plus years that I've been in this business, it has been the shift uh, from investors being interested in uh, assessing emerging markets, political risk, to the uh, undeniable reality of advanced economy political risk, and that includes the United States. It was simply never a factor in consideration for in investors to think about 
the concept of U.S. political risk. But, you know, let's think about what changed. Um, arguments over the debt ceiling. During Ronald Reagan's presidency, the debt ceiling was raised, I think, 13 times without incident. And it became a political hot button issue um, during the global financial crisis uh, and until fairly recently. Government shutdowns, um, not to mention we just had the one year anniversary of the insurrection on, on Capitol Hill. So that's a marked and pronounced change. Now companies and investors have always had government affairs people in Washington tracking legislation as it uh, impacted on an individual firm. But what was less common and where I've really tried to develop my niche is in a kind of holistic and more synthetic approach to looking at how the how developments interact with each other. Uh, and that's complicated to, to say the least, but um, I think it takes us away from, you know, pure focus on elections, who's going to win, and therefore what policies are likely to follow, because political parties don't mean what they used to, political party identity doesn't matter the way that it used to, and also in an era of Vox Populi risk, the, the thesis that, that I developed um, in the aftermath of the Arab Spring and the rise of, of populism, you know, having a, a good relationship between your lobbyist and, and um, the White House or the equivalent in Brussels or whatever is, is no longer a guarantee that you've got your finger on the pulse of what's going to happen next. So I'm very interested in this kind of bottom-up grassroots phenomenon. Again, that, you know, that goes back to my early work uh, in the field and as someone who trained as a, as a regional specialist. Final point I guess I'd make on that is, is at Eurasia Group, we started um, the stability index, the emerging market stability index, getting to the point of what investors were asking about. They wanted to know which of these fascinating and little known um, emerging markets countries were going to become more like the West, adopting the Washington consensus, uh, moving toward um, you know, stable fiscal monetary uh, policies, more orthodox, stable elections and everything else. And you know, let's think about what had been happening, uh, the end of the Latin American dictatorships, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union you know, was just happening. And there was this sense of harmonization and integration to these global norms and institutions. And indeed it, it, it was happening. Well, that's now kind of hit a wall if not gone into complete reverse. And instead of thinking about stability, investors are asking me more about resilience. Um, and we developed some tools at Avonhurst um, to assess this specifically, meaning the capacity to rebound from, uh, from shocks, from, from change and everything else. But what I think has ended is this kind of notion of a, of a linear uh, evolution toward becoming more like the West for all kinds of reasons. And it seems, you know, almost ridiculous to say that 22, 23 years ago, that's what investors were focused on. So you touched on it just now, but we'd like to go a little bit further um, into that Fox Populi framework that you just discussed. Can you speak about sort of the creation process behind that framework? Um, and how you've used it today to throw in examples. I know you've talked to us about Brexit in the past and some of the other populist movements um, around the world. 
And then do you also think that we might be headed towards a Vox Populi 2.0 um, post-pandemic when the world has changed quite a bit from when we first created the framework? Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the, the, the biggest risk factors that um, we need to be assessing as we head into 2022. Um, Omicron has maybe peaked in London, but it's just starting to make its way uh, in the U.S. I think we had peak infections just just yesterday, and you know we're into the second year of this, and um, its impact as a disruptor just seems to you know to to keep on um, evolving. And if we look at the constellation of, of factors as we head into this year, with rising interest rates. Uh, something we haven't seen for a couple of decades, rising fuel prices, the supply chain crunch for, for all kinds of reasons. Just the economic policy drivers alone are uh, a whole new world for traders and investors, right? They have not been in the seat whilst this um, constellation of, of factors has emerged. If you add on top of that, the fact that we don't have any historical comparator, uh, apart from Spanish flu in 1918, for how societies um, react and, uh, and develop, you know, post a major shock like this with, with many, many deaths, as well as, you know, what I have flagged in my work at Avonhurst on the return of geopolitical risk. This is a, you know, this, this is a kind of witch's brew of, um, factors that, that people haven't traded before and we haven't seen before. And yet, what do we see in financial markets? We see markets, you know, continuing to, to outperform, um, equity markets in particular, uh, markets shrugging off a, a lot of these developments. And I think that speaks to the kind of, you know, behavioral um, aspect of, of, uh, of markets. There's only so much news that anybody can take in. And right now there's a strong bias toward um, normalcy, normalcy bias, a return to normalcy. So it's going to take a big event risk. Um, coming back to how we think about the Vox Populi thesis, which emerged out of the Arab Spring. Um, I've, I've been called um, the only analyst uh, on the street who said after the, that weekend in, in Tunisia uh, that I thought there could be a wider demonstration effect across uh, MENA, Middle East and North Africa, which indeed happened. Um, that The Arab Spring protests were followed by uh, the, some of the largest um, mass protests ever in big EM countries, ranging from Turkey and Gezi Park to Russia, biggest uh, protests post-Perestroika, uh, anti-corruption um, protests in Brazil, which eventually resulted in, in Dilma leaving office, and uh, what's often forgotten by people, the biggest mass protest ever in India, which um, followed uh, the very tragic attack on a young woman and her friend on a on a bus. Um, so these were big, also labor protests in South Africa. These all happened around the same time in the aftermath of, of the Arab Spring. And then we had the populist movements in um, developed democracies in Europe. And again, American Americans always kind of seem to we exceptionalize ourselves 
Um, there's no question that President Trump's platform was in, in many ways quite quite populist too. The, you know, the the kind of definition of populism being the sense of there's us and and there's them. There's you know there's the elites and um, and then there's us. You know, good pure people who who are um, you know being thwarted because the system is rigged uh, by these uh, elites. Um, very appealing. And so in 20, 2015, really, the Vox Populi thesis, um, which posited that public opinion had become more volatile and more quickly mobilized thanks to social media and therefore more disruptive than at any point in history, you know, really, really came to a head with the UK vote here on leaving the European Union, which um, markets did not expect, uh, and with Trump being elected. So the question for us becomes, was that peak populism? Or in the aftermath of, of all of these um, post-pandemic changes, well, we hope it's post-pandemic, are we looking at populism uh, or Vox Populi 2.0 quite soon? My short answer is yes, but not yet. So I'm um, just to follow up on that. Um... I'm guessing that right that the thesis of Vox Populi came after the Arab Spring, after you made that call that after this weekend in Tunisia, we're going to see um, movements sort of spread out globally. Um, I'm curious, like at the time, um, what made you confident to say that we're going to actually see um, wider global um, protests? And then how did you sort of formalize that and sort of build this Vox Populi model based on that thesis that you first had after the Arab Spring and make it into this sort of larger framework, which you've uh, 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 applied globally? Yes, well, the first thing we did, because in investment research, you, you know, you're not a commentator, you have to actually, you, know, you have to test and uh, uh, try to support your assertions. Um, we manually collected um, evidence instances to test our thesis. Uh, and the way that we measured it was looking at government collapses and frequency of government collapses over time, early elections uh, and mass protests. So we had to establish some thresholds for those. And then it's simply arithmetic, we counted. Uh, and we were able to establish a trend line that, that showed um, it wasn't just our imaginations, the, the incidents of mass protests uh, and government collapses, more contested elections and the rise of what I called somewhat generically non-mainstream parties was indeed on the rise. Um, now, arguably, uh, better economic times actually make it easier for people to experiment with these challenger and non-mainstream parties. And I always like to remind people because most people study economics, most people in, in business and the markets will say, well, you know, when living standards go into reverse and things get bad, that's when you, you have this negative political um, kind of backlash. Well, in fact, the UK was growing at about 7% uh, when the vote on um, uh, Brexit took place. Uh, and likewise, 
the the U.S. economy was doing um, quite well at the time, also kind of picking up out of, uh, after the global financial crisis and everything else. So I, I think you know that's a great example of a, a of a, a a kind of an expectation held by investors that doesn't always you know pan out as being true. Um, and that is why, by the way, when I say I'm not sure we're going to get Vox Popular 2.0 yet, uh, that's because it's too risky. It's going to be too risky, I think, for a lot of voters in this early stages of the recovery, which I would put at the next one elections taking place in the next one to two years. I don't think they're going to feel very comfortable, at least in um, you know, kind of rich, advanced economies experimenting with with radical political alternatives that might be the case uh, in situations where there is you know more deprivation um, a corruption catalyst which was one of the things that we established in the Vox Populi empirical research that you know brings people together uh, the sense that the leaders are, are on the take and and you know that can temporarily mobilize them to to bring a leader down and and just to circle back to the with the Tunisia one, right? Before you had this thesis that you went back and checked with all the data, it was, I assume, based on some sort of intuition or some working theory. Like, what gave you well, the I confidence? Just, I want to test the hypothesis because, you know, you know, again, a lot of the ideas I get for for research um, thesis is based on questions I get from from clients, from investors, and you know, literally, the question was, "Is it my imagination?" Or are things just on fire everywhere? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we have you know twenty four seven news coverage, and we have um, Twitter and internet and and everything else. And so that that's why we wanted to to do that um, empirical research to to test it. Now I haven't gone back uh, and done anything um, similar since then, uh, but. If we get into my expectations for for 2022, um, we can talk a little bit more about how I see this, you know, kind of um, immediate uh, post post COVID recovery period uh, before we get to the five to ten years out. Because I actually do think that there will be an impact on elections, the social contract, the socioeconomic environment as a result of COVID that will reverberate at least over the next decade. So we definitely do want to get into some of your thoughts about 2022, especially as I know you've spoken about them on other platforms like Bloomberg. Um, but before that, we want to know, you know, can you speak to us a little bit about, um, you know, a couple of examples? I know we talked a bit offline about this, but examples of forecasts that you've ever that you've either gotten right or wrong um, and take us through sort of your thought process, um, you know, behind the forecast and, and the eventual outcomes. Yes, well, you you know you know my feelings that um, forecasts are of <coughs> um, kind of modestly valuable utility. What's good about them is they force analysts to get off the fence. I mean, there is really nothing worse than an analyst that comes out with a fifty percent probability forecast. Um, it is the most irritating thing. Um, and just to complain a little bit more about forecasts, I think that Please. even working with um, you know highly quantitative people on Wall Street, uh, as as I've done for such a long time, I was kind of depressed and traumatized at how 
poorly, I felt that probabilities were understood, you know, just with a simple kind of coin toss um, metaphor that we you know, that we all know and, and love. A 20% probability or a 40% probability event happens all the time in day-to-day -day life. And yet, as, as an investment analyst, unless you're going out with a 90% probability call, that call is ignored <laughs> um, largely. And so one of the uh, approaches that I've tried to incorporate into, into my work, although forecasts get all the attention and they're by far the sexiest and you know, you guys like them <laughs> because they're you know, sort of mathy and um, you know, so many people who are interested in forecasting also love um, baseball and football is just and betting and, and all of this sort of thing. Um, I think our jobs is it, our job is to help people make sense of the current reality, which is why I emphasize looking at plausible forecasts. Um, and I would put plausible as anything above twenty percent. You know, a, a sort of material probability uh, that something happens. That, of course, goes very much against what um, investors are kind of trained to think about, which is uh, the base case plus tail risks. And if you look at the, you know, the books that Ian Bremer has written and, and others, it's all about the, how that kind of how political risk um, accounts for maybe that 10 percent of, of, of tail risks, but can um, produce uh, disproportionate uh, damage. Right. And uh, and and disruption. I don't disagree with that, but that has also taken us down the route of the black swans, you know, the gray rhinos, the snow leopards, um, whatever we're calling them, uh, whatever animal we, we like to we like to use to illustrate this thing which is completely unexpected and suddenly comes charging at us. Well, those instances are incredibly rare, actually. Uh, and um, you know, somewhat whimsically, for for one of my 2022 um, predictions, I've I've included one so that so that we can talk about it. Um, and that's another you know that's another point that investors like to ask me: What thing am I not thinking about? Well, first of all, I don't know all the things you're thinking about, dude. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I cannot read your mind. Um, but it mainly comes from the newspaper and whatever kind of echo chamber people might be on the internet. And I've um, for many years been a speaker at Davos. Davos puts together a, a, a global risk survey. It reflects the conventional wisdom on that day of the business leaders who are at Davos. So in that sense, it, it's a useful crystallization of the conventional wisdom and very much the uh, snapshot, but not, um, not a prediction kind of school of thought. Now I'm, I'm losing my train of thought a, a little bit and going on to some of my pet peeves and things. Maybe you can um, just help bring me back to, oh yes, yeah, so forecasts and um, predictions. Well, the big one was Vox Populi and the idea that, um, you know, as I debated with uh, the chief economist at City at the time, the return of economic growth would not roll back uh, the, the post-global financial crisis return of economic growth did not roll back this demand for change, um, and uh, and that was that was very much true in the macro. 
uh, I don't do election predictions because I, I don't do um, that kind of number crunching myself. You know, I've never produced proprietary models. The way that uh, the approach I've always taken is, and especially as a publishing analyst with regulatory um, responsibilities, uh, I can't just put my finger in the wind and say, this is what my gut says. Uh, you know, we took a flat average of polls, um, uh, reliable polls, and then we uh, incorporated a lot of other indicators so that when it came to the U.S. elections in 2016, I had the highest probability on the street of a Trump victory, but it was 40 percent and not 60. And so I think that was a good call. Um, you know, others said you didn't say it was 90%, so you were wrong. And um, this is where the world of, of probabilistic thinking can collide with the shorthand, the kind of inevitable shorthand that investors and, and business leaders have to make. And that's what's, you know, further led to me developing this approach that says there's a non, you know, non-material probability of, of X or Y happening. Have you stress tested that? in your um in your portfolio scenarios and in your in your business decisions i think, I think that's a much more effective way of going yeah I, I think that makes right there are scenarios and i think for investors and business leaders um they're probably they want to know plausible scenarios rather than just like a an individual probability um on a given outcome because well, if that doesn't happen five, right because like five or ten things everyone thinks they're going to happen you, you know there, there is this kind of hurting uh that happens and you have to be a brave soul to go out you know in in contravention of the of the conventional wisdom too because you tend to get attacked yeah and i i would also imagine that a lot of the questions that your that your clients are, are interested in might not necessarily fall under the the realm of like good forecasting questions, you know? Um, well, because my, I, I, my clients want to, at the C-suite level, they want to know the big existential questions. You know, what's gonna happen next in the world? The future of globalization, the future yeah. of democracy, the future of How do you put a probability on that, right? That, it's, that, that, that's a difficult- Well, it's not an event, right? Yeah. I mean, these aren't events, they, are, they aren't events, they're processes, they are, kind of, you know, multi-factor pathways uh, and how do we chart it? So, I, I mean, I'm, I am very much global macro integrating uh, these, you know, these, these various threads. I kind of envy people who just can pick one thing and, and you know, uh, and, and, and kind of dine out on that <laughs> um, election or piece of legislation x or y you know where is the world headed um that's what's the most interesting and the most difficult um aspect of of this kind of work um i did though just want to follow up you know you mentioned in you in your mind you think forecasting is good because it forces people to get off the fence which i agree is one of the nice things i would say two other benefits is one that you can see how the forecast changes over time um, maybe it started yeah. off as a 60%, but now events have happened. It's at 75%. That is for a consumer an easy way to um, view how the situation is changing with regards to news or other sort of developments that um, an, an analyst might be able to find. And the other one, I think, comes down to having a track record, um, both in terms of like what your accuracy is, but then also like how well calibrated you are. You talked about, well, 70%, you know, 
if 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 something has a thirty percent chance of happening, that's going to actually happen a lot of the time. So, yeah. but if you have a catalog of forecasts, did you call it right? If you said that, you know, that's yeah. Good. Well, but so like that's the nice thing about calibration. Do your thirty percent chance things happen thirty percent of the time? Um, with your sort of vox populi model, um, do you have sort of mechanisms in to sort of track how risk is changing over time so like an equivalent of 40 to 45 percent increase and then also like some sort of track record or or calibration for the for the for for the for the risk analysis and predictions that you make i do not know of an analyst on wall street that um does much of that i mean um I would usually take a stab at going back over what I had said the, the year before, but um, it is uh, not necessarily, you know, rewarded um, uh, in in that sense. And usually analysts will find a way to have been right. Right, no uh, matter what. <laughs> in, in one way or another, which is also part of the, the beauty of being a macro analyst. But as I've said to you, you know, think about, think about interest rate forecasters, people who watch the Fed, incredibly important um, role, uh, you know, and, and without in any way diminishing it, I always like to say, you know, how much easier to look at something where you have a huge time series of historical data to draw upon, plus you're only looking at what 12, you know, people in a room are going to do. Um, that's a very different phenomenon, very different objective then, you know, what I'm trying to do like a fool at the start of the year and say, what are all the drivers and the main event risks um, and where can they, they take us? So, you know, when I approach this year, we start with what our friend Donald Rumsfeld called the known knowns. We, we, we know that there will be U.S. midterm elections. We know that there will be French elections and they start in April and they will have two rounds. We know that there will be a 20th Communist Party Congress in China, and that as you know, anniversaries um, go, that tends to be quite an important one. And from there, we overlay those factors, which I mentioned. We're going to have, um, you know, the growth shock of COVID will continue. That may not disrupt asset prices, but it's certainly going to impact living standards. Um, I look at inflation, uh, inflation risks, which is the biggest risk that investors face, and say the political ramifications of inflation are huge. Um, people get very unhappy about uh, inflation and uh, hits to living standards, which are going to wipe out wage gains that we, we've started to see. Um, and that means that politicians who've been able to maintain uh, public support kind of through the almost wartime sense of, of the, the pandemic itself are really going to be on the back foot. Um, so in this sense, I think economic policy developments and trends are the driver and um, the, the political impact, the political risks are, are going to amplify those things. And, and that, I think, is not being factored into, into markets that um, we, leaders who are now weak are, are, are going to fall um, sooner rather than later. But, you know, I would identify one kind of 
macro outcome that I, I don't think U.S. investors have um, sufficiently sort of taken on board. And that's the fact that the European model has actually done very well through COVID. Um, I think that uh, U.S., I call it the wrong kind of U.S. exceptionalism. Um, the U.S. has been tested as a, as a polity, if we look at divisions and, and polarization and, and everything else. And to me, there is a real risk in the US and a couple of the other markets that we track in the Vax Populi framework that we have at Avonhurst, whereby the leading indicator for you know, revival of populism or political volatility is low trust. Uh, and where you're, where the anti-vax movement, which includes a number of, of a subset of people from left wing, uh, comes together with the far right wing, you have a, a subset of, of voters of disaffected um, citizens that is a potentially new and, and potent force. So I look at that as a as a disruptor heading into this year, and one that we will see tested. The soonest in, in France, which happens to have a very robust anti-vax movement um, on the on the on the left, uh, as well as a much smaller but significant um, right wing. So I, I know we're teasing the 2022 uh, predictions and the signals you're tracking, but just real quick on I, I thought it was just interesting. You said that the analysts don't go back and, and try to figure out what their track record is. Is that because in your clients, basically the track record is whether or not they were sufficiently prepared for risks that happened. And so your track record is- It looks like you're talking is, your are, own book. Inevitably, it happy? looks like you're, you're talking your own book. I mean, with certain types of forecasts, and I would put interest rates there and elections, you know, much more clear cut. It's a lot easier to say, hey, so-and-so called it. Um, with more multifaceted, you know, multi-layer, <clears throat> I think it's quite, it's quite difficult. Um, and it's also kind of a fool's errand. You know, do you want to be providing guidance um, or do you want to be clickbait and, and make a headline? Okay. Well, then enough teasing as Clay said, um, we're definitely really curious to hear about um, what sorts of things you'll be following in 2022. Uh, sort of news stories, signals, um, things that you think will be relevant to the economy, to sort of the geopolitical landscape, uh, generally speaking. Um, yeah, what are some of your top top things that you'll be watching next or this year, I guess now? Sure. Well, I mean, I think we could define, um, you know, the, the kind of um, criteria for putting things on this list as developments that I think are more likely than not to happen, which may not be adequately priced into markets. So that's, you know, a kind of a loose shorthand. Um, so let's think about some events and then some sort of trends uh, with that in mind. And, and for my own uh, universe of um, factors, I, I sort of describe it as the intersection between um, geopolitics and socioeconomics or, you know, I, I'm very interested in, in equality and, um, and, and those kinds of factors, the S in ESG, as some would say. So in terms of uh, chronological order, 
uh, of the things that we know that are, are going to be happening in 2022. Italy and the, uh, the, the new presidency will be an important one. It's not a market moving development, but if um, Mario Draghi or Super Mario is, is elevated to that role, um, it's one that would suit him, right? Someone of his stature and experience and, and everything else. Um, but I actually think it would be bad news uh, for Italy's wider domestic scene. And, and particularly because Draghi has a lot of ideas that he will bring to bear on the kind of um, dirty, you know, the topic of, of debt mutualization, which actually did make some progress during, uh, during the crisis, almost, almost below the radar. So I, I would like to see uh, Draghi remain as, as prime minister. Um, you know, he, he definitely presides over not just a period of political stability for Italy, but um, uh, he's a, a very important voice uh, in Brussels with the other um, EU leaders. And, you know, we've got a new government in Germany. I think we're going to miss Angela Merkel. Um, and uh, we have the, the French elections, the next thing coming, although I do think Macron is, um, is going to be able to um, to overcome the challenges from uh, more more radical candidates in, in this case and uh, squeak um, to, to victory in a second term. Uh, I mentioned I do think Build Back Better will pass in the US, albeit at a much smaller amount. Um, that might be a relief to investors, but if I put my um, uh, equality, gender equality hat and uh, concerns about racial and other types of inequality, the, the, the Build Back Better agenda really simply puts the United States more in line with its OECD peers, its developed market peers. The United States is woefully behind and uh, I, I don't happen to think that, that passing these reforms would, um, would actually result in the hit to attractiveness of the US investment client that a lot of investors do. I'm very concerned about tensions between Russia and Ukraine. I think those are, are very much not priced in. Um, although on balance, I suspect that uh, for Putin maintaining the capacity to escalate and de-escalate and, and permanently undermine Ukraine's functioning as a state probably outweighs uh, more dramatic military action, but it can't be ruled out. I also think the probability of China uh, getting more involved in Taiwan is um, is also underpriced by markets, and and this is where, you know, we can return to our previous conversation about um, uh, probabilities and risks and and scenarios. We're not just talking about annexation or no annexation or a, a military invasion or peace. There are many scenarios in between, and so soft annexation of parts of Ukraine um, or you know, more pressure and undermining in, in Taiwan are, are my expectation. There will be more of these developments that change the facts on the ground without triggering uh, an international military response. And how do markets and business leaders respond to that? Because that would impact supply chain stability and all kinds of other things. I think Boris Johnson um, bumbles along through this year a uh, great example of a leader who got a lot of credit from the public uh, by, you know, kind of the, the UK vaccine rollout. Um, 
now really under pressure, but I think he'll he'll make it through the year. Uh, I think we could see Black Lives Matter protests and uh, and others flare up again. I think that that um, is a very raw uh, kind of a, a wound. And uh, I, I am sad to say that I think it's only a matter of time before there is another um, incident that inflames that. Um, it's uh, mainly a U.S. issue, but not only, and, and that's important. And I wanted to, to close on a point, you know, thinking about what questions investors have asked me. And so our, our conversations to prepare for this have made me think. Uh, the most surprising question I had from an investor, I think, ever was this year. And he said, um, what about aliens? And, you know, you don't know whether to laugh or, uh, you know, this is a very sophisticated uh, investor. And it was uh, during the summer when there were a lot of news stories coming out of the, the Pentagon um, and the Department of Defense about, you know, longstanding projects tracking all of this. And I thought of the things that we can imagine, um, what is one that would genuinely set the cat amongst the pigeons in a very significant way. Bearing in mind that the pandemic has been on lists of global risks for many years and everyone ignored it, we're probably getting quite close to discovering and establishing you know, some evidence of, of life in, on other planets. I am not sure anybody knows what to do <laughs> in those circumstances. So somewhat whimsically, but not, Completely, I wanted to put that out there um, as a genuine, you know, black swan event, something that we we really haven't prepared for and there is no playbook for. So uh, real quick on on that one, you know, we, we've actually asked a lot of our guests who come on our podcast to forecast the likelihood uh, by 2030 that we'll uh, detect evidence of, of alien life by 2030. And I think when we when we calculated it, Andrew, what what was the average around like four or five percent, maybe? Um, but like a non like a non material. I mean, th this this is everything from like single cell organisms. That reflects people not wanting to look like crackpots, um, right? And and yet I think the you know the the balance of evidence and the amount of research that's that's being done on this. I mean, are we talking about you know algae? or, yeah. you know, ET, <laughs> there's a, um, a, a long distance between it, but it's a great example, I think, of a plausible outcome that we don't know how to think about, and so we just exclude from, from our forecasts. Um, you also mentioned that you had a, a quantified forecast for us as well. Um, Did I? No. <laughs> no. Well, then I, I so some of those that you gave, I, I would be curious if you could just give us a um, a, a hot or cold answer on um, what's some prediction. Well, platforms there, I, I say about your risk. All, on balance, more probable than not. Right? So all. I mean, so like um, unlike uh, the likelihood that, you know, there uh, Russia invades Ukraine, for instance, metabolism. Well, so the way that I said so the way that I'm formulating that, and and this is you know you you could call it um, you know a kind of a highly probable event. I think something will take place this year, 
between Russia and Ukraine that will result in a further round of sanctions against Russia. And that's how I would put it. Okay. But would you say a 30% chance of invasion is too high or too low by 2023? So invasion 20 to 20%, I, I, I think is okay. Um, but remember the way the Kremlin works and the points I tried to make about kind of not non-binary forecasts. There's a lot of mischief that can be made the little green men of the, the previous um, invasion, the 20, 2014. Um, well, they weren't Russian soldiers. They were patriotic citizens on holiday, you know, in, in, in Donetsk. Um, they could also do so airstrikes instead of a, a land invasion. They could do a lot. Airstrikes would trigger a military response. We should be thinking about geopolitical risk as much more manifesting in below radar um, attacks. <laughs> you know, geopolitics is the act of projecting power abroad uh, rather than conventional military strikes. Um, so I think that things will heat up between Russia and Ukraine. Um, and I think that's, that uh, Russia will undertake a move that will, will um, trigger uh, a sanctions response. The one that most worries financial markets is, is Russia being kicked out of SWIFT, the payment system. Um, that would be extreme. However, not as extreme as it might have been because this has been um, you know, telegraphed for some time. The Russians have prepared for it. I think another geopolitical point is more coordination between Russia and China um, and a more assertive China. I think that uh, people have been dreaming um, when they imagine that um, China needs foreign investment so much that it's um, you know willing to to make itself uh, a, a, a more um, kind of you know global oriented power. Um, there, you know, the, the geopolitics, as I said, is about projecting power abroad um, instead of global domination, as we had during the Cold War. Uh, what we have is that both Russia and China want to be the regional hegemons in their neighborhood. And that's a huge test for a, a more ambivalent United States um, and a, uh, a, a weaker European Union. COVID has made um, the great powers much more inwardly focused. And that is probably one of the most important outcomes uh, of the pandemic crisis. It means that there's a, a an, it's an excellent moment for geopolitical opportunists, large and small. Fantastic. Um, so getting into our penultimate question, and we hinted at this earlier on uh, offline, but what are some of the books that you've read over the course of the year um, that you'd recommend for anybody who wants to be better equipped to navigate uh, this increasingly complex global environment? Uh, it's a good one. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of business books, so I don't read many of those. Uh, in my undergraduate life, I was a double major in, in uh, English and comparative literature, and I'm a big believer in the idea that if you want to understand human behavior, human nature, um, there's actually a lot to be said for, for reading fiction. So um, unusually, I will say that. When it comes to the more, uh, you know, 
probably more um, types of recommendations from me you'd, you'd expect. I am a big fan of the book uh, Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Uh, it starts out with a quiz at the front um, about uh, assumptions about the, the world. And um, it's wonderful because everyone gets them wrong, uh, which I enjoy. I really enjoy when we are forced to confront that the conventional wisdom is not correct. So I would put factfulness very high uh, on my list. Um, in the UK, uh, a book came out by uh, Satnam Sangara called Empire Land. Very well timed with the the UK's um, the UK's own experience with Black Lives Matter, uh, and um, it caused a huge sensation uh, and very much, you know, in the vein of of what's happening in the in the US with the so-called critical race theory. Um, talks about empire in factual historical terms, which a lot of people didn't like. So Empire Land, uh, considering the size and the scope of the British Empire um, and how you know, comparatively recently it, it fell, is a very uh, interesting insight into this, you know, this, uh, this huge uh, force in the world of the British Empire. My children are uh, here in the UK system and there's almost no um, uh, no time devoted to the study of, of empire. So uh, those are things you, you might not um, expect me to say, but uh, really, really interesting, um, interesting books that I think will change the way you, you think about things. Um, the, I might close with one more, which is by Carolyn Criado Perez called um, Invisible Women. It is a data-driven assessment of how men are basically treated uh, as the default human, as she calls it, and everything from seat belts and crash test dummies um, to much, much more. If you are someone who says, okay, gender equality, I get it, kind of a problem. Can you prove it to me? Read Invisible Women <laughs> um, because it is full of data. And there are people out there who, um, you know, need that kind of convincing. Uh, it's it's well worth your time. Well, Tina, thank you so much for spending all of this time with us, for giving really insightful answers. Um, uh, where can our audience find you, um, keep up to date, and sort of anything um, interesting um, planned for the for for the new year that you're going to release. I, I know you were going to release a, a, a Vox Populi for 2022, right? Um, just yeah, all that great stuff. So um, obviously on LinkedIn, Tina Fordham, and um, on Twitter, I'm at Tina Fordham One. Um, you can see clips from my TV appearances and that sort of thing. My public research is posted on my personal website, www.tinafordham.com. And so the work I did with the United Nations, the original Vox Populi paper and more are all there. And um, the new tools and approaches that we're working on at, at Avonhurst are um, mainly targeted to clients, but we do make some available and those normally go uh, on LinkedIn, but I'm, I'm very happy to keep in touch and keep in touch with you guys uh, as well. Keep the 
keep the dialogue going. Awesome. Um, I uh, I assume that we can expect you to be on uh, on Good Judgment, Open, and Metaculous anytime soon, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tina, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, this was a really great show. And for me, thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.